Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. The Bank of England acts to control house prices, but will its measures have much impact? Minimising taxes is sensible, but how much risk should you take on in order to do it? And the latest developments at funds run by star managers Neil Woodford and Terry Smith. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most downloaded podcast. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues James Pickford. Hello. And Emma Dunkley. Hello. Plus a special studio guest, Rob Bergman of wealth management group Bruin Dolphin. Hello. Three words heard and read more often than ever these days. House price bubble. Prices in London have long since passed their previous peak and there's now a fairly strong recovery underway in most other parts of the country. Yet there's much less jubilation this time around and growing concerns about affordability. Some research from the housing charity Shelter this week showed that nationwide there are only around 89,000 homes on sale that a family on average wages could afford. Ministers have effectively delegated the job of controlling house prices to the Bank of England. The bank's governor, Mark Carney, has effectively ruled out raising interest rates to cool the boom, saying that to do so would endanger the economic recovery. He has also said in the past that he must make policy for the whole country, not just for the inside of the circle line. So, what can the bank do? Step forward the Financial Policy Committee, set up in 2010 to monitor so-called macroprudential risks in the economy, like house price growth. It met last week to consider the house price issue and it announced its prescription today. James Pickford is here with more. James, what has the FPC decided to do? Well, as you said, there's been a lot of worrying about housing market risk. We've now had warnings from Chancellor George Osborne, uh, as well as Mr Carney. They're worried about household debt and the fallout that could result if there are big moves in interest rates or incomes or any sort of economic shock. So what we've had today is an announcement um, that the FPC has recommended and the PRA has accepted its recommendation of a new affordability test. And this would come in in October, on October the 1st, where mortgage lenders would be obliged to assess if borrowers could still afford to repay their mortgages if interest rates were three percentage points higher than they were at the time of the loan. It's a stress test. Uh, The other thing that has been announced um, is that the bank said that no more than 15% of a lender's 
total number of mortgages for, for residential buyers should be more than 4.5 times the borrower's income. So that's what's known as a loan-to-income ratio limit. And that new rule would apply to lenders who've done basically more than £100 million worth of new mortgage contracts in the last year. It won't apply to remortgaging, where the sum being borrowed remains the same. And as I say, it will come in in October. All of that hardly sounds like a revolution. What's been the market reaction? Well, the reaction has been that just as, in fact, when Mr Carney was discussing this, he says, if you could get a mortgage yesterday, you'll still be able to get a mortgage today. And the reason he says this is that we have already in place um, limits on affordability under a, a system called the Mortgage Market Review, which came in at the end of April and sets these criteria around affordability to make sure that people can afford to pay back their mortgages, even if there are shocks to the economy. So there are stress tests in place, and there are limits on the amount of borrowing that people can make depending on their income. So some people are saying, well, this won't change anything in the short term. But as Mr Carney says, I think if we did see a big rise in house prices or any other sort of economic shock, there's every reason to think this could come into play uh, in a year, in two years. The only thing is it is a bit of a blunt instrument. And of course, over the past few years, we have been moving away from loan to income ratios. That was the whole point that some people said of, of setting up the MMR, because it gets a much more sophisticated way of judging whether a mortgage is affordable. Now, only two months after introducing the MMR, we have a flat loan to income ratio being imposed by the bank. So the Prudential Regulation Authority and the FPC, they're there to look at the stability of the banking system primarily and ensure that banks don't do silly things with mortgage lending. And the Financial Conduct Authority, which implemented the MMR, is effectively trying to make sure that consumers, that borrowers, don't do silly things with mortgage lending. Are these two organisations talking to each other? Because from what you've just said, it sounds like they're not, in a sense. I think they are. And many people think that even though it doesn't have an immediate impact on the market, that's precisely the point, that it's something that affects sentiment. And this is what we need to see at the moment, that we don't want people piling into the housing market. But equally, there's a big balancing act to be carried out by the bank, which is not to choke off economic recovery and therefore not to create rules and impose rules simply because of a, a housing market bubble that, that is focused on London and the South East. James, thanks very much. There's lots more about the FPC's decision in this weekend's FT Money, which is available on both Saturday and Sunday as part of the Weekend FT. Still to come on the show, star managers Neil Woodford and Terry Smith have been busy setting up new funds, but what will they invest in? First, though, let's look at tax planning. Nobody wants to pay more tax than they have to, and there are lots of perfectly simple and legal ways that you can arrange your finances in order to pay less. These range from the very simple things like putting savings in the name of a lower rate taxpayer rather than a higher rate one, investing in premium bonds and using ISAs and pensions. Then there's more advanced tax planning, perhaps aimed at minimising capital gains or inheritance taxes. And finally, there are the convoluted schemes designed specifically to avoid tax, which the Treasury is now aggressively challenging in the courts. But how much trouble should you go to in order to shelter your investments from tax? What other risks might you be running in order to avoid paying tax? 
and are those risks worth it? Much of this, of course, will depend on your individual circumstances. But here with an overview is Rob Bergman, a director at wealth management group Bruin Dolphin. Rob, let's start with the easy stuff. There's really very little risk in things like ISAs and pensions, is there? Well, I mean, there's risk in any form of investment that you take. Even doing nothing is a risk in itself. Take an ISA as as a good case in point. One could simply use a cash ISA as a supplement to one's other savings. But there you have the risk that the the value of that saving, those savings aren't going to keep pace with inflation. So for most people, it's why we advocate really one has to take a portfolio approach to these things. Let's talk about ISAs for a moment, because last year the uh, the government finally allowed AIM shares in ISAs. Now, these, of course, have the um, the added advantage of being exempt in certain circumstances from inheritance tax, but they're also quite risky. So how does investing in AIM shares stack up as a, as a tax planning strategy? Like most things, there, there are advantages and disadvantages with AIM shares. But in general terms, we'd say for most people, AIM shares are considerably riskier than shares which have a main market listing or international blue chips or unit trusts or investment trusts. So you can take the largest uh, share, ASOS, for example, which which last week it missed some sales numbers, shares went down by sort of half, it had a fire at its factory and they get hit again. These kind of things can happen, but, but for immature companies, they pose a different threat. Bear in mind as well with uh, AIM shares that there are different rules and regulations that go with them. So one can find as a, as a shareholder that one is diluted through sort of further share issues. OK. And for wealthier savers, perhaps, who've used up uh, their ISA allowance for the year or have maxed out their pension contributions for the year, they can turn to things like venture capital trusts and enterprise investment schemes. What are the pros and cons of those as a tax planning strategy? Interestingly, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the savings landscape was a relatively straightforward one. And and these days, it's become a a far more diverse environment. At the one end of the spectrum, there's cash. And at the other end, there's VCTs and EISs. You get quite generous tax breaks for going into them. But they're given for a reason. I mean, they they fulfil an objective in that they're providing seed capital, venture capital, to small, growing, emerging companies. Now, that is clearly not without risk. So that that's why you get quite generous tax breaks for doing so. The other thing to bear in mind with even even if you do your due diligence, you sort of find the right kind of company, the right kind of VCT that you're happy with the risk, you're going to spread off them. You can still find that that some of the VCT managers themselves fail to abide by the rules that that govern them. Let's talk for a moment as well about trusts, which are devices used or structures used by often wealthier investors to safeguard assets from inheritance tax and allow a degree of control over who inherits what and and at what time. Presumably, setting up a trust is is quite a big piece of planning. Is, Is it worth it for most people? For most people, probably not because the costs involved in, in establishing a trust, setting a trust up, and the ongoing running costs of that trust are pretty high. You need to have a fairly compelling reason, I would think, to, to want to go down that road. And the government is consulting on changing the rules in any case, isn't it? They have introduced a general tax avoidance rule. So even things which you could look at and think, well, that, that, that looks OK, everyone tells me this is OK, you, you could find that actually the ground has shifted from beneath you. Clearly, the more the more aggressive the tax planning you do, if you like, the, the greater the risk, I would say, that at some point in the future you might find that that tax planning gets undone by future legislation. 
Let's talk about those because um, some of those schemes have been in the news uh, recently, things with exotic names like Icebreaker. Typically, celebrities have been advised to invest in these things to, to mitigate tax. They seem very risky. And one thing that we've found out researching them this week is that um, the tax authorities don't give any pre-approval. You kind of invest in these things at your peril. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. In general terms, again, I'd say that if the savings look too good to be true, then you do run the risk that at some point in the future, the revenue would come back, clamp down on it and retrospectively claim back the tax and interest that was due. And that has some pretty nasty consequences for people because in general terms, again, the revenue want cash. If you've got that money tied up somewhere, it can be very expensive if you've done long term planning to unwind all of that. Okay, and finally, just as a a very general rule, to what extent is it worth investing in things purely to save tax? Or should the rationale for investing always be, first and foremost, that it's the right investment and appropriate to to your risk profile? Absolutely. I mean, the starting point must be making sure that the investments you've got are suitable for for what you're trying to achieve and your risk profile and your time frame. But tax savings certainly form part of that. You've got to be cognizant of the tax implications of the different decisions that you make. As ever, the secret to us is is a well-diversified approach. Because what you don't know is the way that the investment and tax uh, fiscal landscape are going to change over the next sort of 20, 30, which for most people is their time frame. Okay, thank you very much. That was Rob Bergman, a director at wealth management firm Bruin Dolphin. You can read lots more about the relative merits of various tax mitigation products in this weekend's FT Money, which features a handy riskometer to help you decide whether the savings justify the risk and effort involved. You can read FT Money online at any time at ft.com forward slash money. And the Weekend FT is also available on mobile devices via a free web app in both Apple and Android versions. We're always keen to hear your views. You can leave comments on articles on the website or you can email us directly. The address for that is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. Earlier this year, star fund manager Neil Woodford left Invesco Perpetual, the firm where he made his stellar reputation, and set up his own venture. It has already attracted around £5 billion of assets thanks to acres of publicity from distributors like Hargreaves, Lansdowne and Best Invest. But what's he going to spend it all on? Next week he'll be telling us, but we already have a pretty good idea, thanks to corporate disclosures and public comments from the man himself. There's lots of the usual stuff, shares in big, safe, reliable companies, but a few surprises too. And another fund manager with a new product to sell has been Terry Smith, the boss of interdealer broking firm Tullet Prebon, and an occasional FT Money columnist. His fundsmith operation already runs an open-ended fund that's famous for its concentrated portfolio and low turnover. Now he has gone into the emerging markets space too. Emma Dunkley has been watching developments at both funds. Emma, Neil Woodford seems to be going for largely the same things in his new fund that he had in his Invesco Perpetual Fund, is that right? Yes, so he managed to raise a total of £1.6 billion in the offer period, which closed last week. And since then, he's already invested about 95% of the fund. And just to say, unlike other funds, Woodford Investment Management has announced that they're actually going to be disclosing the entire portfolio every month, which is great news for investors because they can see what they're actually investing in. So, as you say, the top 10 holdings and the larger stocks in the portfolio will be relatively similar to those that he used in his Invesco income funds. So the top 10 holdings will likely include 
big pharma and defensive companies such as GlaxoSmithKline, AstraZeneca, BAE Systems and Rolls-Royce, for example. In a slight departure, he's also going to be investing in HSBC. He was very bearish against the banks just before the credit crunch, which paid off massively and saw his fund weather a lot of the storm as other funds crashed. But at the other end of the portfolio, in the smaller space, he's also going to be investing in some quite interesting stocks that are in the AIM market. So, for example, this week, he has bought a lot of these shares that he held at Invesco, at the same time as Invesco has actually sold out of these shares. So he has bought Etherapeutics, Revolima, Reneuron and Prathena all of which are listed on the AIM market. Well, this is quite interesting, isn't it? Because the Invesco Perpetual Fund was enormous and uh, quite defensive. And then there was always this thing about lots of these holdings in very small companies. And it's the same at the at the new fund. I mean, this is an equity income fund, isn't it? It's designed to be quite defensive and it's designed to generate income. So why do you think is he investing in these small companies, some of which don't even make a profit yet, let alone pay out any dividends? That's right. In his old role at Invesco, where he ran the income funds, he managed to deliver a high return in terms of capital growth for investors while also returning a a decent income. But admittedly, towards the end of his tenure there, the income level actually fell to the point where the Investment Management Association actually reclassified his funds so that they were moved outside of the income sector. So with this new fund, he is adopting a similar approach insofar as he's investing in some of these startup firms, which, if he holds for the long term, can actually significantly appreciate in value. But he is also targeting a 4% yield. So that means that income investors can still hold this fund and expect a decent income and capital growth over the long term. Although Mr Woodford has clarified that he won't let the 4% yield target dictate which stocks he picks. Let's look at Terry Smith. His uh, existing Fundsmith equity fund is also full of uh, big, safe, reliable blue chips. But he's launching a new venture, which is going to invest in emerging markets companies, and it's structured as an investment trust. What difference does that make? The investment trust structure is very important for managers seeking to invest in areas that are perhaps less liquid. This is because open-end funds, by comparison, are more affected when investors' money flows in and flows out. This is because the manager has to put this money to work when it comes in by buying up assets and conversely sell those assets when investors want to pull money out. So in the event of a sell-off in the emerging markets, investors in an investment trust who want to sell will look to sell their investment trust shares on the market, which means that the manager won't be forced to sell the assets in the trust. However, this does mean that the value of the shares in the trust which the investors are selling could fall in value below the net asset value of the trust, which means it's said to be trading at a discount. Now, Terry Smith raised uh, £193 million in his roadshow, which was slightly less than he wanted, but still a good result. What sort of things can we expect him to buy in his fund? Yes, he's adopting a similar approach to his current open-ended fund, insofar as he's targeting those companies that can return a high return on capital, but also... um, aren't that capital intensive and can beat off other competition in in their respective sector. So, for example, consumer staples is one area he's a big fan of. But this also plays into his view of the emerging markets in that he's expecting more of the emerging market populations to grow in affluence and therefore spend more money on consumer staples. 
Terry Smith must be a very busy man. He already runs the Fundsmith Equity Fund, which is open-ended. Um, he's launching this new uh, trust and, and he's chief executive of a FTSE 250 company. How does he manage to do all this? Yes, he's a busy man. It is possible for fund managers to manage more than one fund and other mandates behind the scenes. But in order to juggle all of this, Mr Smith has announced that he will be stepping down from his role as chief executive of Tyler Prebon. Thank you, Emma. There's plenty more detail on both new products in this weekend's FT Money. Other highlights of this weekend's issue include small-cap investor John Lee, one of the UK's first ISA millionaires, discussing what he learned by holding shares in one company for almost 40 years. And as new ISAs gear up for launch, we look at how best to invest £15,000 using only passive funds. And my column looks at whether we are all in some way to blame for the disgraceful behaviour of Wonga, the payday lender. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, Emma, James and our special studio guest, Rob Bergman of Bruin Dolphin. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.